0: I want you to think about a time in your life when you have had a great teacher that influenced you. A great teacher. And, and, and what I mean by that is somebody that came along in some level in your life and, and didn't just teach a lesson and make it entertaining, but I think what a great teacher can do is they take an idea or a subject and they just open up a whole new way of thinking that you've never considered before. It changes how you think about your life, it changes Uh, maybe how you think about a certain subject. Great teachers are invaluable, because they mold and shape the the ways that our lives can be lived. This summer, uh, I got to actually experience some great teaching in a way that I wasn't quite prepared for. Uh, It was an experience that my family and I, as as many of you know, we uh, had a three month sabbatical this summer. And we took one major trip as part of that, and the trip we took was to Europe. And we started the trip in Europe with uh, going to Paris, which is where my two teenage daughters have wanted to go, both of them and never been. Uh, in their lives, but after we agreed we were going to go to Paris, some major negotiating came in in the family, which is partly also just having teenagers. But uh, what we quickly learned was that Beth and I were excited to expose them to some of Paris that was some of the cultural stuff. It involved some museums. It involved some things that just kind of a, that, kind of the rich history and length. And the kids were excited about things that were not in museums when they thought about Paris. And so museums became a negotiating point of how we would do this. How many museums, how much time in the museums, do we really need to go to the museums? And, um, and so what happened was we decided, well, we're gonna do one museum, we're gonna do the Louvre while we're there, and we're gonna do it. And so that means we had found out about this company that worked with the Louvre and gave half day Tours of people who are knowledgeable and so we said so we're gonna do a half day and we're gonna like lean in and Really do it and learn from somebody and then the rest of the time. We don't have to do museums The day of the Louvre tour arrived and there was some grumbling in our family uh, About did we really still have to do this? But we got an uber and we went down and we arrived at the Louvre and uh, walked up at the time we were supposed to be there and they said oh you are gonna be going through with Adam. I wanna bring a picture up here of Adam uh, and my girls. This is uh, Miriam and Hannah along with Adam. And Adam was a fascinating individual. Adam was Canadian, had gotten his PhD in art history and restoration and worked at the Louvre in the art history and restoration. He did carbon dating on pieces. He uh, kind of dated and, 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 and helped the, the curators there to understand uh, the, this art. And he was just an amazing teacher. We were expecting somebody to just take us through, we learn some facts, and then we go on with our day. Adam was having none of that. We go through the Louvre, and I learned all this stuff, for instance, about uh, statues and about sculpting, right? And so we, you know, we were there, and we started with kind of Roman and Greek, and we saw how they were standing straight. And then Adam took us through other parts, and he's telling us about how movement came into stone and how you understand that. And then he found one piece that he said was almost his most favorite piece in the place and it was a statue of a of a winged nike about to uh jump off of a, a cliff uh, where it was and and he uh, got us to see that the way that the sculptor i'm doing it now the way that the sculptor had uh carved this piece was this motion of this uh nike about to leap into flight and he got us as all these you know other kind of regular tourists we don't want to be them are like walking around with their maps it's like oh that's this from this date and then they go on to another part Adam's getting our group to stand there and mimic what the Nike is looking like, going, I want you to see like the movement. It's not one step back here, it's not another. He's getting you in motion, of and think about that, and then think about what that's like to, for a sculptor to decide to capture this about to take flight in stone. And you're going, this is amazing. All of you with your map should be doing this. You should be seeing this kind of motion. It was amazing what he brought alive. And then at the end, he brought us to the piece we spent maybe the most time with. It's going to come up here Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Now, survey time. And I want you to be honest in this survey, no matter how you think it makes you look, because Jesus is watching your heart and knows if you're telling the <laughs> truth or lying here or not. Hands up if you've been to the Louvre and seen the Mona Lisa. Okay, okay. This is the honesty part. How many of you after you battled the long line to get up there in the Italian Renaissance thing, finally made it to the front and saw the Mona Lisa and thought, uh, how many? Yeah, and that's what I thought until I met Adam and all of you are wrong in that opinion. All of you are wrong because this is one of the truly great pieces of art and I want to tell you why we're saying because I had this teacher that just sort of like opened this whole world up and I promised my wife I am not going to tell you everything I learned about this because apparently twice over dinner with friends since we've come back I bored people by talking about the Mona Lisa too much so I'm not going to tell you everything but just the one thing that I wanted like for example of what makes this so cool are her eyes now the eyes of the Mona Lisa Uh, Adam got us to walk through the gallery. He said, before you battle the lines and go up there, walk through the Italian Renaissance part, and as you're walking around, look at the eyes of the paintings, and what do they do? And so our group's walking around, and we're looking at these different paintings, and we come back, and we're like, they're they're just looking straight ahead, kind of like what they do. And he said, right, now, take the same walk all around the gallery, and just watch the Mona Lisa's eyes. And when you do it, and you're walking around, you realize her eyes, in a semi-creepy way, when you start noticing it, actually do seem to follow you as you're walking around. And Adam wanted us to understand why. He said one of the ways that da Vinci revolutionized painting and that portraits were never done the same after the Mona Lisa is he started to understand things about human bodies. He said, he said part of what makes this such an ingenious painting is not because of Leonardo as an artist, but of Re- Leonardo as a Renaissance man that he was an inventor, that he was an architect, that he was a city planner, and that one of the other things about him is that he learned a ton about human beings and the human body. And so he spent decades learning about the human body, and one of the parts that he learned a lot about were eyes. And he realized some things in his study over the years about how eyes work. And one of the things about eyes is on all of our faces, and you're gonna start looking at each other uh, like this today, (laughs) is that actually none of our eyes are exactly symmetrical. Some of our eyes, our, our eyes are usually ones a little bit bigger or more wide open than the other. And it's usually very subtle so that you don't actually notice it. It's just what a real human face looks like. But Leonardo changed painting because artists just painted two symmetrical eyes. And so what he did is one of the eyes of the Mona Lisa is a little bit more open than the other. Not so much that you would notice it, but so that it actually looks what, like what human eyes look like. And the other thing that, uh, that he did is he realized that human eyes also are painted wrong and that we just paint eyes looking symmetrically in the same direction. And that no human being's eyes look exactly straightforward, that our eyes are a little crossed or just a little off. Again, usually so subtle you don't know, it's just what a human face looks like, but Leonardo learned this. And so he painted the eyes of the Mona Lisa, they're a little bit crossed. Not so much that you would notice and it would stand out, but so it looks like a real set of eyes. And the last thing, and I promise I'm going to stop with this, but the last thing that he does is he spent years talking about and studying how light reflects off of, think about this, how light reflects off of and refracts through eyeballs. And so he painted this in a way so that as you walk around, he painted light and dark in a way to get a sense of as you're walking, how the light reflecting off the painting would mimic how light moves through an eyeball as you move through it in different ways. And these very subtle things all came together so that when you walk around the room, her eyes follow you. He started talking about how this was different than other paintings. And all of a sudden this teacher, we walked out kind of grumbling, going into the Louvre, not just appreciating some art, but this whole mind blowing experience about what art and artists could be. Have you ever had a teacher that just took the lid off of what you were thinking about and opened up a world of possibilities that changed how you think? That's what great teachers do. Adam was a great teacher. And at the end of our time in Paris, our family, we always do this. We do kind of what our high and low of that part of the trip was. And unsolicited, they didn't make any money or profits off of it. We asked all four of us, and for all of us, including my two children, the highlight of Paris at the end, the high, was the Louvre. Not because every city we're going to go to, museums will now be the only thing we do. But we had an amazing teacher who changed the way we thought about things. Have you ever had a teacher... It altered the way you looked at a subject and changed you forever. The parable we're going to be looking at today that Jesus is teaching should have that kind of effect. It is a parable that when you look at it, and we might have studied before, might seem simple in the beginning. But as we mine into it a little bit, it should change how we think about ourselves. It should revolutionize how we think about human beings. And it should change our perception of how we think about the greatness of the God that we worship. It should have that kind of revolutionary effect. The parable that Jesus is teaching from is found in Luke chapter 15, verses one through seven. And I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we gather and worship today, what questions, what opinions we might have, that we would experience your gospel today, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Jesus teaches this parable of the one lost sheep. It's probably in your Bible. It's it's listed. uh, If you look at it, it's the parable of the lost sheep. But to understand what's really happening here, I need just to understand the context a little bit and that there are three categories of people that are here. And each one of these categories of people is important. Now, The first category of people that we have in this scene are the Pharisees, the religious rulers, the religious establishment, the rule followers, the pure ones, the ones that kind of see uh, the rest of people and how they are separated and different and Jesus is with them. Now, Jesus has been with them before. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we looked in Luke 14 at a dinner that Jesus was at, but they were, it wasn't controversial to them because they were guests at the dinner. And that's who a rabbi should eat with, right? Is the Pharisees, the, the religious people. That's where the good teacher like Jesus should be. But this dinner is different. It's controversial. It's scandalous almost. Because the Pharisees are there, but so are other people. That brings us to the second category and the third category of people. There's the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, for any of you who work for the IRS, you might feel that this kind of unfairly categorizes you in a way, and I think that's fair in our modern world, right? Like we can have all kinds of debates about how many taxes we wanna pay and what that's like, but I don't know that any of us would look at just someone who happens to work for the IRS and say, you are morally depraved in a way that casts you out from me, right? It's like tax collectors and sinners. So we gotta understand, tax collectors, the second category, are like people who were universally hated at the time. And they were hated for good reason, and the reason was because, quite simply, they were thieves. The way that the Roman empire conquered is that Rome would go and conquer a region here like uh, Palestine and uh, the way that they would rule is they would collect taxes from the citizens. And those taxes were not something that you got to vote on and decide. You didn't get to decide if we want like more or less taxes like here, you were just told what the tax was and it was very high. But they would employ your neighbors, they would employ local people to go and collect the taxes. So someone you knew, maybe grew up with, shows up saying, I'm here to collect taxes for the caesar but they wouldn't come by themselves they would come with a whole squad of roman soldiers and if you didn't pay the tax or didn't want to pay the tax or didn't feel like you had the money to pay the tax because you didn't know you are going to eat it didn't matter the soldiers collected the tax or did whatever it took to get the tax so you were betraying kind of your own people in a sense. But what tax collectors were also infamous for doing was on top of collecting the tax Caesar told them to, they would also say, and for my trouble of having to walk around here and put up with your attitude, I'm gonna add some on top of it and I'm not gonna ask if you wanna pay for it, but the soldiers are gonna beat you up if you don't pay that as well. And, so, and I'm gonna take that and keep that for myself. So you were stealing from your neighbors who were already oppressed. Pharisees knew that tax collectors were hated by everybody. Rome employed them, but the Romans weren't friends with these tax collectors. They weren't Roman. They were kind of beneath them, but they protected them. But their neighbors didn't like them either. No one liked tax collectors. It would have been an incredibly lonely, even though you had money. It was an incredibly lonely life. But you earned it because you were stealing from people. Stealing from people who had very little and were paying so much in taxes. They were hated. So the Pharisees knew, if we can associate Jesus with tax collectors, everyone will hate him. Right? So that's why they draw out the tax collector part. He hangs out with tax collectors, and who else? What's the third category? He hangs out with sinners. Now that's just kind of a more broad-based, you're not pure, you're kind of choosing your own way, this is my way of living, this is what I'm gonna do, you know, whatever it is, I'm not gonna follow uh, this with my money or my whatever. Um, and sinners were sort of a broad category. So you've got the Pharisees, you've got the tax collectors, and you've got the sinners. Those are the three categories of people there. And when the Pharisees start grumbling, because of who Jesus is eating with, which was a little bit like my kids before we went to the Louvre, there was grumbling that was going on, Jesus tells them this parable. It's a parable where a shepherd goes and finds one lost sheep, leaves the 99, goes and finds the one, brings it back over his shoulders, and is rejoicing when the one lost sheep comes home. Now Jesus is telling this and when Jesus is telling this and I want you to think about this in your mind I want you to imagine what the reaction of the Pharisees might have been Might be similar to what our reactions were are if we just actually sit with this for a second I think one possible reaction to this and I know people that live and think this way now Is it's like you know when I actually get beyond the Jesus is doing it so it must be right I don't actually really like this very much, right? Like, I actually don't like the fact that there's good people trying to follow the rules and do it the right way and people who are openly not doing it, people who are openly stealing from other people and Jesus sits at dinner tables with the rule followers in one chapter and then the rule breakers in another chapter and just sort of seems to treat everybody the same. That's not right. It's not right. It's not right that some people are trying to do the right thing and other people aren't. And so I kind of don't like that this is what's happening. And if that's a little bit how you feel, it's important to name that and own that. That's probably how some of the Pharisees reacted. Another way that they can react, and this is the way I hear this taught in the church a lot, is this. Oh, what a great God we have. A great God who doesn't just pay attention to the 99 rule-following sheep that say, but God goes after the one. God loves the one that's wandered away. What a great God we have. I know a lost sheep. You know, it's this person. It's that person. They're wandering away. And I love the idea that God leaves us and goes to them and picks them up and brings them back. And the inference there is to bring them back to the herd so they too learn to become like us, to stop wandering away, to stop just kind of going off, but to become rule-following sheep and to become people who, who don't wander away. I was described as, when I came to faith as a Christian at age 24, this is the kind of language and the imagery that was used, right? It's like, and the Lord has brought back one of the lost sheep. Now, there's parts of that that are true. I had been found, and I'm grateful to that to this day. But is the idea of this that there's the herd and the lost sheep who, don't, who wanders and the herd who doesn't, and that this one's brought back to the herd and that's the point? Think about it this way, and this is where you start realizing the depth and revolutionary power of what Jesus is teaching here. Who of these three categories are the 99 that don't need to repent? Who in this story doesn't need to repent? Do the tax collectors need to repent? Yes. They are stealing from people illegally and doing so by force. Yes, they need to repent. I think that's clear. Do the sinners, whatever kind of category that is, yes. Jesus never says that they don't need to repent. But what about the Pharisees, who I think the church often teaches, and I think probably assumed that they are the herd of the 99 obedient sheep. Do they, the religious people in this story, not need to repent? No. No. Henry Nouwen writes about this and talks about the lostness of religious rule followers. And he says, when you look at the Pharisees, there is a coldness to them. There is an otherness to other people that they see differences. They look down their noses at everyone else and there is a smug removal from humanity that is incredibly toxic. Nowen says that in fact this category which is the most subtle are the people who wind up killing Jesus. The most dangerous people in the world are the ones who don't believe they need to repent. You heard what Beth said in the assurance. We say we don't have sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't within us. Who here are the 99? Which of these categories don't need to repent? Which of you? Which of you? doesn't have anything to confess or repent of. And that's when you realize the true power of what Jesus is teaching. There's no such thing as two categories of sheep. Lost and rule following who don't need a shepherd. There's just lost sheep. Isaiah says it this way, all we like sheep have gone astray. Friends, sheep wander. That's what they do. And some of us need to realize that our wandering may look like the tax collectors. We are just openly taking what we can get to make our life right. Doesn't matter what's happening to our world, doesn't matter what's happening to other people. There are others of us who are like the sinners who are just kind of making life up to be lived on their own terms, on their own rules, and we may need to repent of that. But there is also in us, in some of us, probably in a lot of us, a rule-following, cold person who looks down at others who are not following the rules the same way and thinks, this parable is for you. There is no such thing as a sheep that doesn't wander. There is no such thing as 99 who don't need to repent. And when you realize this, what you realize is, is that all of us are some mixture of the tax collector and the sinner and the Pharisees. We all got this weird mixture probably within us. What does your lostness look like? And then it revolutionizes finally how we think about God. Because this passage isn't ultimately about sheep at all. What this passage is ultimately about is the heart of the shepherd who always comes and looking for the sheep that he loves. Because while sheep wander, and you and I wander in different ways, all of us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. There is a shepherd who never stops coming for us, never stops loving us, never gives up on us because the most valuable possession for a shepherd is their sheep. That's what the gospel is. It's ch- and think about this for church. Church's primary job is not to teach you to be a better sheep. The job of the church is to celebrate the love of the shepherd because that's where our hope lies. Not in more rules, but in the love of the one who never stops looking for us. Tim Keller says it this way. The gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves. We all are the wandering lost sheep. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Have you ever had a great teacher that reoriented the way we think? The easy way of looking at this is there's two categories of sheep. And which one am I in? I would suggest that the way Jesus is teaching this is in a wholly different way. It's to say, I want you to know, no matter how far you feel from God, no matter what your wandering looks like, God will never leave you. God will never give up on you. God will never abandon you. God will never walk away from you. That God will give you second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. The scandal of the gospel is this. All we like sheep have gone astray. But you are more loved. You are more desired. You have more value than you can possibly imagine because it's declared for by the heart of the shepherd. Receive that worth today and may it fill you to overflowing we worship an amazing God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would be with us, teach us, guide us about this journey of following the shepherd. And may we trust in his voice this day and always. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.